Chapter One of Darnley, or the Field of the Cloth of Gold. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Darnley, or the Field of the Cloth of Gold, by George Payne Rainsford James. Chapter One. In this King Arthur's reign, a lusty knight was pricking o'er the plain. Dryden. On the morning of the twenty-fourth day of March, 1520, a traveller was seen riding in the small rugged crossroad, which, traversing the eastern part of Kent, formed the immediate communication between Wye and Canterbury. Far be it from me to insinuate that this road pursued anything like a direct course from the one place to the other. On the contrary, it seemed, like a serpent, to get on only by twisting, and yet truly as its track now lies pictured on the old county map before me i can discover no possible reason for its various contortions inasmuch as they avoid neither ascents nor descents but proceed alike over rough and smooth hill and dale appearing only to wind about for the sake of variety i can conceive the engineer who planned it laughing in his sleeve at the consummate meanderings which he compelled his travellers to undergo however as at the time i speak of this was the only road through that part of the country every traveller was obliged to content himself with it such as it was notwithstanding both its circumvolutions and its ruggedness indeed the horseman and his beast who on the aforementioned morning journeyed on together towards canterbury were apparently well calculated to encounter what the profane vulgar call the ups and downs of life for never a stouter cavalier mounted horse and never a stouter horse was mounted by cavalier and there was something in the strong quadrate form of each in the bold free movement of every limb and in the firm martial regularity of their pace which spoke a habitual consciousness of tried and unfailing power the rider was a man of about five or six and twenty perhaps not so old but the hardy exposed life which had dyed his florid cheek with a tinge of deep brown had given also to his figure that look of set mature strength which is not usually concomitant with youth but strength with him had nothing of ungracefulness for the very vigour of his limbs gave them ease of motion yet there was something more in his aspect and in his carriage than can rightly be attributed to the grace induced by habits of martial exercise or to the dignity derived from consciousness of skill or valour there was that sort of innate nobility of look which we are often weakly inclined to combine in our minds with nobility of station and that peculiar sort of grace which is a gift not an acquirement to paint him in the mind's eye were very difficult though to describe him were very easy for though i were to say that he was a tall fair man with the old saxon blood shining out in his deep blue eye and in his full short upper lip from which the light brown moustache turned off in a sweep exposing its fine arching line though i were to speak of the manly beauty of his features rendered scarcely less by a deep scar upon his forehead or were i to detail with the accuracy of a sculptor the elegant proportion of every limb i might indeed communicate to the mind of the reader the idea of a much more handsome man than he really was but i should fail to invest the image 
with that spirit of gracefulness which however combined with outward form seems to radiate from within which must live to be perfect and must be seen to be understood his apparel was not such as his bearing seemed to warrant though good it was not costly and though not faded it certainly was not new nor was the fashion of it entirely english the grey cloth doublet slashed with black as well as the falling ruff round his neck were decidedly flemish and his hose of dark stuff might probably have been pronounced foreign by the connoisseurs of the day although the variety of modes then used amongst our change-loving nation justified a man in choosing the fashion of his breeches from any extreme whether from the fathomless profundity of a dutchman's ninth pair or from the close-fitting garment of the italian sorder the traveller's hose approached more towards the latter fashion and served to show off the fair proportions of his limbs without straightening him by too great tightness while his wide boots of untanned leather pushed down to the ankle evinced that he did not consider his journey likely to prove long or at least very fatiguing in those days when as old hollinshed assures us it was not safe to ride unarmed even upon the most frequented road a small bridle path such as that which the traveller pursued was not likely to afford much greater security however he did not appear to have furnished himself with more than the complement of offensive arms usually worn by every one above the rank of a simple yeoman namely the long straight double-edged sword which thrust through a broad buff belt hung perpendicularly down his thigh with the hilt shaped in form of a cross without any further guard for his hand while in the girdle appeared a small dagger which served also as a knife added to these was a dag or pistol which though small considering the dimensions of the arms then used would have caused any horse pistol of the present day to blush at its own insignificance in point of defensive armour he carried none except a steel cap which hung at his saddle-bow while its place on his head was supplied by a genoa bonnet of black velvet round which his rich chestnut hair curled in thick profusion here have i bestowed more than a page and a half upon the description of a man's dress and demeanour which under most circumstances i should consider a scandalous and illegitimate waste of time paper and attention but in truth i would fain in the present instance that my reader should see my traveller before his mind's eye exactly as his picture represents him pricking along the road on his strong black horse with his chest borne forward his heel depressed his person erect and his whole figure expressing corporeal ease and power very different however were his mental sensations if one might believe the knitted look of thought that sat upon his full broad brow and the lines that early care seemed to have busily traced upon the cheek of youth deep meditation at all events was the companion of his way for confident in the sure-footedness of his steed he took no care to hold his bridle in hand but suffered himself to be borne forward almost unconsciously fixing his gaze upon the line of light that hung above the edge of the hill before him as if there he spied some object of deep interest yet at the same time with that fixed intensity which told that whilst the eye thus occupied itself the mind was far otherwise employed it was a shrewd march morning and the part of the road at which the traveller had now arrived opened out upon a wide wild common 
whereon the keen northwest blast had full room to exercise itself unrestrained on the one side the country sloped rapidly down from the road exposing an extensive view of some fine level plains distributed into fields and scattered with a multitude of hamlets and villages the early smoke rising from the chimneys of which caught by the wind mingled with the vapour from the sluggish river in the bottom and drifting over the scene gave a thousand different aspects to the landscape as it passed on the other hand the common rose against the sky in a wide sloping upland naked desolate and unbroken except where a clump of stunted oaks raised their bare heads out of an old gravel pit by the roadside or where a group of dark pines broke the distant line of the ground the road which the traveller had hitherto pursued proceeded still along the side of the hill but branching off to the left was seen another rugged gravelly path winding over the common at the spot where these two divaricated the horseman stopped as if uncertain of his further route and looking for some one to direct him on his way but he looked in vain no trace of human habitation was to be seen nor any indication of man's proximity except such as could be gathered from the presence of a solitary duck which seemed to be passing its anchoritish hours in fishing for the tadpoles that inhabited a little pond by the roadside the traveller paused undetermined on which of the two roads to turn his horse when suddenly a loud scream met his ear and instantly setting spurs to his horse he galloped towards the quarter from whence the sound seemed to proceed without waiting to pursue the windings of the little path in a moment he had cleared the upland towards the spot where he had beheld the pines and instead of finding that the country beyond as one might have imagined from the view below fell into another deep valley on that side he perceived that the common continued to extend for some way over an uninterrupted flat terminated by some wide plantations at a great distance in advance sheltered by a high bank and the group of pines above mentioned appeared a solitary cottage formed of wood and mud it may be well supposed that its architecture was not very perfect nor its construction of the most refined taste but yet there seemed some attempt at decoration in the rude trellis that surrounded the doorway and in the neat cutting of the thatch which covered it from sun and weather as the traveller rode towards it the scream was reiterated now guided by his ear he proceeded direct towards a little garden which had been borrowed from the common and enclosed with a mud wall the door of this enclosure stood open and at once admitted the stranger into the interior where he beheld what shall be detailed in the following chapter end of chapter one